Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this episode, Seattle-based writer Ijeoma Aluo has been widely recognized for some time now as a person who speaks sometimes uncomfortable truths about racism in America. These are very scary times for a lot of people who are just now realizing that America is not and has never been the melting pot utopia that their parents and teachers told them it was. These are very scary times for those of us who are just now realizing how justifiably hurt, angry, and terrified so many people of color have been all along. These are very stressful times for people of color who have been fighting and yelling and trying to protect themselves from a world that doesn't care, to suddenly be asked by those who've ignored them for so long, what has been happening your entire life? Can you educate me? That recognition reached a crescendo in recent days with the release of her first book, So You Want to Talk About Race. Her work clarifies and amplifies the importance of this moment in which many Americans are choosing or having to reflect upon historic and present-day racism. She approaches the subject with passion, sharpness, and humor. The themes include race, privilege, systematic discrimination, and intersectionality. Ijeoma Luo's writing has been featured in The Guardian, New York Magazine, and Jezebel. She's an editor-at-large at The Establishment. She read from her new book and spoke with writer Lola E. Peters, at Benaroya Hall on January 25th. Seattle Arts and Lectures presented this conversation as part of their Women You Need to Know series. Jenny Cecil Moore recorded the event. Please note, this recording contains unedited language of an adult nature. Here, Seattle Arts and Lectures Executive Director Ruth Dickey introduces the program. To officially open each of our events, we feature a student from our Writers in the Schools program. This year, Writers in the Schools is working with 27 area schools and at Seattle Children's Hospital to match them with local professional creative writers to inspire over 6,000 students to write their own poems, stories, comics, and memoirs. Tonight's reader, Maria Hernandez, will be sharing her poem, Water, which she wrote while working with WITS writer-in-residence, Damon Arundel at Southlake High School. Please join me in welcoming Maria. Water. Water what my mom told me to stay away from, what she thought would be the only thing I would drown in, water, what I now see as my escape, my peace and tranquility. My mother never warned me against the fears and doubts I could also drown in. The self-hate talk and a late lack of confidence would be things I would let myself drown in, but it would be up to me to keep swimming or let myself sink deeper. Maria. You can find copies of Maria's poem at our information table and also on our blog, which you can find via our brand new website. And now, the moment we've all been eagerly awaiting. Tonight is part of our series called Women You Need to Know, 
And when we conceived of this series three years ago, our intent was to connect Seattle audiences with the most important women thinkers of our time. I can imagine no better fulfillment of this idea than having the honor of presenting Ijeoma Oluo tonight. Ijeoma is a nationally celebrated writer and editor and a true hometown hero. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, New York Magazine, Jezebel, and The Stranger. She is an editor at large for the establishment and Seattle Magazine named her one of the most influential people in Seattle. We've been lucky to have Ijeoma on our stages before she moderated the conversation with Roxane Gay last winter, and she captivated the audience at, at the Moth as one of the storytellers last spring. Tonight, we're here to celebrate her brilliant and important new book, So You Want to Talk About Race. This is a courageous book. Ijeoma writes that it was, quote, a grueling, heart-wrenching book to write, end quote. And she gives us all a tremendous gift by sharing her personal stories of experiencing the pain and violence of racism through schools and systems and police officers and even friends and loved ones. This is an uncomfortable book. It is a brilliantly delivered, pragmatic, insightful, heart-opening, paradigm-shifting invitation to the most important conversation of our time. It is a book that made me, as a white woman, re-examine my privilege, recommit to being uncomfortable, recommit to learning and to working for change. This is the book we need right now. We not only want to talk about race, we have to talk about race. I know it is a book I will continue to return to and learn from over and over. I hope it is a book that all of us continue to return to over and over. Please join me in welcoming the phenomenally gifted writer, courageous storyteller, and fearless advocate, Ijeoma Olua. I had to find all of my relatives first. <laughs> I don't, why aren't you guys sitting together? That's weird. <laughs> something happened in like the few, Jackie, there's my sister all by herself. <laughs> I feel like this book has really alienated you. I'm so sorry, Jackie. I, I feel bad. I accidentally, we just made some last minute edits because I accidentally wrote my sister out of an entire chapter of the book. <laughs> I misquoted my mom as saying she raised two black children, but she raised three black children. <laughs> and everyone was like, I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, Jackie. And people were like, you could just have pretended it was you you forgot about. <laughs> but I was also like, yeah, my sister's not buying that. She knew right away. <laughs> the whole family would know. Like I tried calling, I was like, Jackie, so. I don't know how far you've gotten in the book. <laughs> but she knew right away that with, with the two that, that she was the one that was edited out of that. So it's been fixed for future editions. <laughs> the collector's editions will be the ones in which you don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So I'm going to start just by reading a little bit from the introduction of my book. As a black woman, race has always been a prominent part of my life. I have never been able to escape the fact that I am a black woman in a white supremacist country. My blackness is woven into how I dress each morning, what bars I feel comfortable going to, what music I enjoy, what neighborhoods I hang out in. The realities of race have not always been welcome in my life, but they have always been there. When I was a young child, it was the constant questions of why I was so dark while my mom was so white. Was I adopted? Where did I come from? When I became older, it was the clothes not cut from my shape and the snide comments about my hair and lips and the teen idols that would never, ever find a girl like me beautiful. Then it was the clerks who would follow me around stores and the jobs that were hiring until I walked in the door and then they were not. And it was the bosses who told me that I was too loud, the complaints that my hair was too ethnic for the office, and why, even though I was a valued employee, I was making so much less money than other white employees doing the same job. It is the cops I can't make eye contact with, the Ubers that abandon their pickup driving on instead of stopping when they see me. When I had my sons, it was the assumptions that they were older than they were and that their roughhousing was too violent. It was the tears they came home with when a classmate had repeated an ignorant comment of their parents. But race has also been countless hours spent marveling at our history. Evenings spent dancing and cheering to jazz and rap and R&B. Cookouts with ribs and potato salad and sweet potato pie. It has been the hands of women braiding my hair. It has been reading the magic of the words of Toni Morrison, Maya Angelou, and Alice Walker, and knowing that they were written for you. It has been parties filled with jollof rice and fufu and Nigerian women wearing sequin-covered gowns and giant geles on their heads. It has been the nod to the black stranger walking by that says, I see you, fam. It has been pride in Malcolm, Martin, Rosa, and Angela. It has been a room full of the most uninhibited laughter you've ever heard. It has been the touch of my young son as he lays his hand over mine and says, we're the same brown. Race, my race, has been one of the most defining forces in my life. But it was not something I always talked about, certainly not in the way I do now. Like many people, most of my days were spent just trying to get by. Life is busy and hard. There are work and kids and chores and friends. We spend a lot of time bouncing from one mini-crisis to the next. Yes, my days were just as full of microaggressions, of the pain and oppression of racism as they are now. But I just had to keep going on like normal. It is very hard to survive as a woman of color in this world. And I remember saying once that if I stopped to feel, really feel, the pain of the racism I encountered, I would start screaming and I would never stop. So I did what most of us do. I tried to make the best of it. I worked 50% harder than my white coworkers. I stayed late every day. I dressed like every day was a job interview. I was over polite to white people I encountered in public. I bent over backwards to prove that I was not angry, that I was not a threat. I laughed off racist jokes as if I didn't feel the sting. I told myself that it would all be worth it one day, 
that being a successful black woman was revolution enough. But as I got older, as the successes I had reached for slowly became a reality, something inside me began to shift. I would try to make my voice quieter in meetings and I couldn't. I would try to laugh off the racist jokes and I couldn't. I would try to accept my boss's reasons for why I could have my promotion but not my raise and I couldn't. And I started talking. I started to question. I started to resist. I started to demand. I wanted to know why it was considered a bad thing that I was opinionated. I wanted to know what exactly it was about my hair that was unprofessional. I wanted to know what exactly it was about that joke that people found funny. And once I started talking, I couldn't stop. I also started writing. I shifted my food blog into a me blog. And I started saying all the things that everybody around me had always said were too negative, too abrasive, and too confrontational. I started writing down my frustrations and my heartbreak. I started writing about my fears for my community and my family. I had started to see myself. And once you start to see yourself, you cannot pretend anymore. It did not go over well. <laughs> my white friends, and having grown up in Seattle, the majority of my friends were white, some of whom I'd known since high school, were not happy with the real me. This was not the deal they had struck. Yes, they would rage over global warming and yell about Republican shenanigans, but they would not say a word about racial oppression and brutality facing people of color in this country. It's not my place, they'd explain, when in frustration I'd beg for some comment. I don't really feel comfortable. And as I looked around my town and saw that my neighbors were not really my neighbors, as I saw that my friends no longer considered me fun, I began to yell even louder. Somebody had to hear me. Somebody had to care. I could not be alone. Like dialysis, the old went out and in came the new. Suddenly, people I had never met were reaching out locally and from all across the country, in person and online, just to let me know that they had read my blog post and in reading it, they felt heard. Then online publishers started reaching out to me, asking if they could republish my work. And locally, isolated and invisible people of color started reaching out, showing me that I did have neighbors after all. I was talking and writing at first for my very survival, not for anybody else's benefit. Thanks to the power and freedom of the internet, many other people of color have been able to speak their truths as well. We've been able to reach out across cities, states, even countries to share and reaffirm that yes, what we are experiencing is true. But the internet has a very wide audience. And even though we were writing for ourselves, the power of the hurt, anger, fear, pride, and love of countless people of color could not go unnoticed by white people, especially those who were genuinely committed to fighting injustice. While some had chosen to turn away, upset that this unpleasantness had invaded their space of cat videos and baby pictures, <laughs> others drew closer, realizing that they had been missing something very important all along. These last few years, 
The rise of voices of color, coupled with the widespread dissemination of video proof of brutality and injustice against people of color, has brought the urgency of racism in America to the forefront of all of our consciousness. Race is not something people can choose to ignore anymore. Some of us have been speaking all along and have not been heard. Others are trying out their voices for the first time. These are very scary times for a lot of people who are just now realizing that America is not and has never been the melting pot utopia that their parents and teachers told them it was. These are very scary times for those of us who are just now realizing how justifiably hurt, angry, and terrified so many people of color have been all along. And these are very stressful times for people of color who have been fighting and yelling and trying to protect themselves from a world that doesn't care, to suddenly be asked by those who've ignored them for so long, what has been happening your entire life? Can you educate me? Now that we're all in the room, how do we start this discussion? This is not just a gap in experience and viewpoint. The Grand Canyon is a gap. This is a chasm you could drop entire solar systems into. But no matter how daunting, you are here because you want to hear and you want to be heard. You are here because you know that something is very wrong and you want to change. We can find our way to each other. We can find our way to our truths. I have seen it happen. My life is testament to it. And it all starts with conversation. So that was weird. I just read from my book, y'all. It is my pleasure to speak tonight with someone I consider a dear friend and a leader in our community, a wonderful artist, writer, poet, Ms. Lola Peters. So, Ijoma. Hi, Lola. Hi. She's been avoiding me <laughs> for, for weeks. For months. I <laughs> ran into her at an event. She was like, I cannot talk to you. <laughs> I'm saving all my questions. That's right. For Benoit Hall. She sh shooed me away. Go away, go away. Yeah. So you want to talk about race? I know, I, I think feeling, I think writing, so you've been dragged kicking and screaming into talking about race is a long title. <laughs> well, we, you know, we don't have to. We can, I don't know, we could talk about our brothers. They, they're, you know, my brother plays the trumpet. What about yours? You know what? My brother dabbles in trumpet. He's <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So, um... I do want to actually talk about our brothers, but not right, right now. Um, and, and publicly, how delicious. Um, what I do want to do, though, is it seems to me that one of the things that often happens in conversations about race 
um, it's sort of like having a conversation about relationships, right? Where everybody starts, or whoever's in the conversation starts talking, but you're not, we're using the same words, but not necessarily speaking the same language. So I thought maybe we could start by defining our terms. You're a writer, you know the value of words and, and being accurate and on point about words. So I wanted to kind of explore what do you mean by some of the words that you're using in, in the book? Yeah. Um, one of the terms that you use, and, and you used it in your introduction, you talked about it, is white supremacy. Now, um, there may be a couple of people in here who like fly Nazi flags and stuff, I don't know. But <laughs> my guess is that most of these folks are folks who just came from war. weird hobbies if you're here. Right? <laughs> That's, this is the ultimate hate watch right here. That's right. <laughs> you spent 40 bucks. <laughs> That's commitment, right? I know, right? <laughs> if only everyone hated me that much. <laughs> oh, and they have to buy the book, of course, right? Because right. they have to. Buy the book, hate read that book. <laughs> hate read it for all your friends. Exactly. Hate read it for Christmas presents. Please. <laughs> um, so, you know, my guess is most of these folks are probably folks who think, when they think white supremacy, they think, not me. So tell us what it is, what, you, what do you mean when you talk about white supremacy? Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important. Part of the reason why I wanted to write this book was because I think that we have to be more specific about these terms, and we have to update our language. White supremacy is a system. It's not really a feeling. It's a feeling made into a system. It's a hierarchy. It's not, white supremacy is not a random white dude who doesn't like black people. He may be a white supremacist, but white supremacy is the goal, the system, that prioritizes some people over others. And it's not a system where like it's absolute, right, where every white person is doing great. But it's a system that means that the elites of that group can hold power and do it, they can do that on the backs of people of color. And they justify that by setting up a system that says that people of color are worth less, that people of color need to be controlled, that people of color need to be exploited. And it is a whole system aimed to basically extract from people of color for the benefit of those at the very top. And it's a system aimed to justify that for people in the middle who might otherwise be you know, morally appalled at being a part of that system. But it's a system with its justifications built in. And part of the reason why I wanted to write this book was because I got really tired of people thinking of white supremacy as like just this random fog collection of Nazis. Um, that's not how white supremacy functions. Um, there's not a vote every year, and then if enough people decide that they don't want black people to have shit, that, like, it's another year of white supremacy. That's not how that goes. I mean, if it is, let me know. <laughs> Maybe I just haven't been invited. <laughs> but, you know, what I want people to do is to get away from this talk of intention and whether you are a good or a bad person and to start looking at how you interact with a system of white supremacy. So um, one of the things that I think about when I think about white supremacy is the uh, belief 
that everything that is related to white people is the right thing. That, that white people get to define what is right and what is best and what is proper. Um, I'm curious, um, when was the first time you realized that um, white people were not superior? I have always had. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, you can ask my mom. <laughs> my mom's white. And I was, when I was little, I used to just walk around looking around like, oh my God, how did I get here? <laughs> um, I grew up surrounded by whiteness and made very, very well aware that I was not white. Um, and to see it normalized, and especially here in the Pacific Northwest where you can make people of color very aware that they're not white, but you never actually say it, because, you know, God forbid. Um, and so what you end up with is this thing that's supposed to be normal, that you're not a part of, and you're just observing it going, this is screwed up. Like, there is, there's a lot wrong with this normal thing here. And so I think I always, you know, I think being in an outsider position all the time, you're observing, and, and you can see more easily when things don't add up. And a lot of these things that were told to me that were supposedly normal, that didn't work for me, and, and it was a glaring example of not working for me because it was like my brother and I were the only black kids anywhere. You start wondering like, well, if it's normal, how come it doesn't fit? Like, how come it doesn't fit me? How come it doesn't fit my world? How come it's so impractical? Like, how come it's so messy? And so I think from a very early age, I was aware that whatever this normal thing that people weren't calling white supremacy, there were a lot of things wrong with it. At first it was more like it was annoying and impractical. <laughs> At first it was just like, that doesn't make sense, you know? And then as I got older, I started to see it more as a system and started to see, you know, have words to describe it. So one of those words um, is uh, racism. So when you write about racism, when you talk about racism, what do you mean by that? I think that there's different levels of racism, right? And I have, I'm very clear in my definitions of racism that I do think that if you are invested in ending systems of racial oppression, you have to include systemic power in your definition of racism. It cannot just be racial bigotry. Not to say that racial bigotry is fun and that like we shouldn't like say, hey, stop that, you know? Um, but when we look at the power to change lives, to ruin lives, you have to look at the power granted to people who are practicing racism. Racism as a general, this person doesn't like people of color, it is a problem because it is so easily maintained and manipulated without people knowing that they believe it. We have a whole society that is set up to have people thinking really awful things about people of color and they don't even know that they think it and it's racism. And I know that sucks when you realize that you're carrying some of those thoughts because we're used to thinking of racism as like just the KKK and if you're not burning a cross on someone's lawn, you're not a racist. But if you are called a racist, you might as well be murdering people right now. Um, and that's not 
what it is. Like that's perhaps the enforcer, the enforcing wing of white supremacy, but what it is, is it's a justification for this system, right? This false belief that there are certain you know, flaws in people of color and that people of color deserve less or deserve different and that whiteness is normal in the way everything should be is a justification for a system that requires that and many other systems of oppression in order to continue to keep the vast amount of profits and opportunity in the society to a select few. So racism is definitely an action, but for me where it's most important is it's a justification for a system. Unexamined racism, it might have you saying some awful things to me that'll ruin my day, fine. I can get over that. But it will also have you voting a way that can ruin my life. And I can't get over that. And that's where I would like this discussion to go. I have no interest in winning over the individual hearts and minds of virulent racists. I think there are so many of us in the great middle, so many people who have absorbed a lot of really, really harmful stuff that would like to do better, and I would love to focus our attention there. And those are the people I write to and for. Um, I don't understand why we keep skipping <laughs> everyone. We're gonna skip the 60% of people who would like to do better if made aware. They might fight a little bit in the beginning, but they'd get there. And we're gonna just go to this Trump rally. And <laughs> I don't, that's part of the reason why those videos make me so mad. With the guy hugging, like, the guy, Jude, Jude, like, drove, like, 200 miles to what? To go hug someone who hates him? I'm like, you know what? <laughs> yeah. Mm. No. You could have done so many better things with your time. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I washed the car. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so, so what do you, what do you, think it is that keeps racism in place. I mean, like you said, 60% probably are people who don't want it to persist. So why does it? What is it that keeps, keeps it going? I think part of it is because we, I think it is deliberate that we have not updated this conversation. I think that it serves the powers that be that we only think of racism as people with swastika armbands out, you know, shouting the N-word at people. I think that it serves them to not look at the system. I think it serves them to say that if you are racist, you are the worst in the world. That means you're never gonna want to examine your own behavior because God forbid you find some racism in there and then you have to throw yourself in the trash. Um, and I think that that is done purpose. Even in school when we learn about race, what we learn is the most violent examples. And it's usually in this tale of, thank goodness we aren't there anymore. So go and be nice to people of color, otherwise you might become a member of the KKK. <laughs> but those discussions aren't saying that, you know, even in like the post-reconstruction era, what people feared the most were many of those everyday systemic obstacles where they would live, how they would work, how they would feed their families, whether they could be kept safe in an everyday sense, whether they would be able to have any income to pass to future generations, whether they would have access to medicine and the things that they need to survive. 
And so I think that a lot of times, even when you watch these TV shows, right, people have this weird fatalistic approach. Everyone's been waiting for all of the races to just die. <laughs> As if we had, like that was the vintage year for racism. <laughs> I do hear that a lot. I hear that a lot about, yeah. well, no, when these baby boomers die. die, and I'm like, I'm not quite ready yeah. for that. <laughs> Mind if I stick around a little bit? Yeah. Like, there was something in the water, you know, <laughs> between, you know, like, what, for 400 years? Yeah. And then the last 50 years or so, we got rid of, you know, fluoride took care of it. And... <laughs> We, we don't realize it's baked into our systems. And in all honesty, you know, it's so weird to see people talk and say, well, you know, we just have to love one another. You can love to, first off, don't try and hug me, that's weird. <laughs> but it's not gonna help me. When I go out for a job and you've given me a hug but you also haven't examined what you think about people of color or even if you do hire me and you haven't looked at how your company is not catered at all to any of the needs of employees of color, or you haven't looked at your workforce and whether or not that's a workforce that an employee of color would be comfortable in, then you, your hugs aren't paying my bills. Like, your hugs aren't helping me. And I think that the re we throw it up there because when you realize that what upholds these systems are everyday decisions and actions that we make as citizens. And I say that including anyone who's here, I deem a citizen. The actions that we make here in this country every day um, uphold this system. And every time that we don't examine it, we're passing up an opportunity to make a change. And when we realize it's really that simple, to make really big changes, because it is, then the whole system starts to kind of fall apart. And I think that there's a reason why I think it's very much on purpose that we're kept from seeing that, mm -hmm. that we're told it's too hard. But I've seen really big changes made so by you know, really small decisions. So talk about some of those. Yeah, I mean, you know, even simple things like how many of you pay close attention to who's running for your school boards? Yeah, see, like yes. five of you. <laughs> and I'm not throwing shade because, I don't know, you know, it's, it seems, it's not sexy. School boards, you're like, what do they do? They vote on pencils. Um, but when you're looking at something like the school to prison pipeline and the quality of education that our children of color are getting, right? The city of Seattle has one of the widest opportunity gaps in the country. So your school board, it's kind of important. And your vote counts a lot, right? Especially when there's only five of you paying attention to it. <laughs> like, if you, if you were one of those five, you got a 20% like, chance of really making some you know, when you're looking at things like that, why children of color are being suspended, how many of them are being shoved into special education programs without any diagnosis other than that they're difficult, and whether our special education programs 
can meet the needs not only of our disabled children and children with learning needs, but disabled children of color. Right? These are people who are desperate for your vote. And you can, all you have to do is stop by to one of their meetings in an election and ask and say, this matters. I have a group of parents here who are going to give their vote to the person who cares about this and wants to make it a big deal. And then you've made a huge measurable impact in your neighborhood, right? If you're sitting in a work meeting and you notice that the only people who ever get asked questions is that like one white dude and you're like, hey, look, I know Chet's got great ideas, but can we please <laughs> listen to someone else? You can make a measurable impact, right? Where you spend your money. If you go to a movie as a white person and you walk out every time saying, man, that really spoke to me, I really saw myself in there, there's a problem. And if instead you say, you know what, I think I'm gonna go to a movie where I uh, see people who don't look like me. I'm gonna put my money there. And I'm gonna let studios know that I'm not spending my money in these other places because I really do think that everyone deserves to see themselves in stories. Everyone deserves to see themselves in heroes. <laughs> then you're making a measurable impact. Not only on the economy and on the career prospects for artists of color, directors of color, writers of color, but for a generation that really does need to see themselves as heroes and as people we're saving. And you know, it's these everyday decisions where you inconvenience yourself a little bit that can matter. You know, who's running for your city council? What are they, you know, they have a lot of power when it comes to things like police reform, so does your mayor. And they want your vote. And they're going to tailor what they say and what they plan to whatever gets you to vote for them. So imagine if your priority were things like affordable housing and police reform. Right? These everyday things make a huge difference. Um, and it's somewhat inconvenient to have to think about it, but people of color have to think about it every day because these systems don't fit us. So everything you're interacting with that's easy is not easy for us. And making it a little less easy for yourself every day can make a big difference in making it better for everyone else. So one of the um, other things you talk about, one of the other principles you talk about is privilege, um, which is a really big conversation. Um, and gosh, I hope some folks are feeling uncomfortable right now. <laughs> so please, talk, tell us what you mean when you talk about privilege. Privilege is so funny because it's such an incredibly important concept. It's such a valuable concept. And it, you would have think you insulted someone's mother by <laughs> asking them about privilege. Like one guy I remember just sent me this, you saying I'm privileged? in all caps, and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's so funny because I think sometimes the people who get most offended by it are probably most likely to not know at all what it means. And a lot of people feel like it's a denial of their whole life, right? 
that if you say someone has privilege, it means they've never struggled, and that they didn't deserve what they have, and that their opinion is of no value. But privilege is basically an absence of struggle in one particular area. So privilege lives in all areas of our life. I am an incredibly privileged person. I'm a light-skinned black woman. I have a college degree. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest in a country that believes in educating women. I am now middle class. I have reliable transportation. I have a lot going for me that if I didn't have, my life would be a lot more difficult. There are other areas where I'm underprivileged. And so I always like to explain to people, it's, it doesn't mean that you haven't struggled. It means that if you take all the struggles you have and then added blackness to it, <laughs> it would be harder. <laughs> Just like if you added disability to it, or poverty, or illness. Um, but privilege can be built into systems. There can be systems that determine privilege. And so when it comes to things like race and gender, you have systems that are there to manufacture privilege. It's not about chance outside of once you're, you know, what, whatever parent you're born to. But it's a system that's meant to maintain those levels of privilege. Now it's important to know about privilege because if you want to make a difference, that's where the difference lies. I really don't need people who have racial privilege to like stand next to me while I'm fighting with the little privilege I have. Like it's kind of like, you know, when you're looking for something, like whenever I'm looking for something in my house and I ask my kids to help and they literally just follow me everywhere. <laughs> do <laughs> and I'm like you're not helping me I'm just bumping into you that's kind of what it feels like when people are like I'm gonna fight racism and so they literally are just like I'm just gonna stand next to you <laughs> get in your way privilege is a room that you're in that other people aren't in and so you have to know what your privilege is because you have to know where that part of the system is benefiting you at the expense of others because you are the only person with the power to change that. The people who aren't in that room can't change that. So if I get a promotion because of my race, I can't expect my subordinates to then be the ones to lead the charge for more diverse management and expect that to be nearly as effective than if I, who has the power to help determine how we hire people, leads that charge. Right? All of these, and it, it can be as simple as your peer group. I know there are a lot of white people in this audience who know that if a black person were to come to them and talk about something with race, that there would be a fair amount of people in their group, no matter how well-intentioned, who would assume that they only think it's a problem because of their race, and that maybe they just think everything's about race, and they are likely to dismiss them. I've seen this happen so many times. I'll be talking about something, right? Mm -hmm. And then one of my friends will be like, let me paraphrase this and say the exact same thing, but far less elegantly because... <laughs> so if I understand what you mean... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like some dude will be like, oh man, thanks Jim. That makes so much sense. Great. 
And he'll like apologize to Jim and conversation will be over. And I'll be like, what the hell? Yeah. Um, but that's a privilege, right? And you find it, you've, in the, after that painful moment where you're like, oh, I am part of the problem. Then you go, okay, well now I can work on not. You don't, you're, it doesn't, not knowing that you're part of the problem doesn't mean you're not part of the problem. <laughs> like, you're still part of the problem. And if you have an inkling you might be, you know you are, and you can't pretend. <laughs> Give me like, no, 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 no one said it to me. No, 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 I don't have to do anything yet. Yeah, you know. And if the word privilege scares you, you know. And I hope that we can get to where we are looking at it and seeing the value in it, in these situations where we find that we have been prevented from seeing things. Because even if you're doing everything you can to fight systems of oppression, your privilege is going to stop you from seeing certain areas. That means that even me, my privilege stops me very often from making sure that my work is fully accessible to disabled black people, or that my work is fully inclusive to transgender black people. And I, when people bring that to me, it sucks to like be like, oh, I didn't do it right, and I hurt someone, and it's my job to not do that. And then I'm like, oh, I'm so glad they told me now, so I can stop doing it. And so maybe I can incorporate this into my work and make my work better. Because I don't think we all, any of us want to wake up five years from now and find out that our progress made us oppressors. And if you don't examine your privilege, that's what's going to happen. Well, worse yet, um, you wake up 10 years or 20 years from now and your... Um, your children, your nieces and nephews, your grandchildren are asking you, what did you do? <laughs> you could have done something because you had the opportunity, you had the, the um, place in society. What did you do? Yep. And that's going to be an interesting question to answer if you have done nothing. Um, so... You also talk about intersectionality, and you mentioned it just a little bit just now. Say a little bit more about how, how you see that. What, what does that mean to you? I think the reason why I included my chapter on intersectionality right after my chapter on privilege is because you can't understand intersectionality without understanding privilege. And it's interesting now to see oftentimes how people take the work of Kimberly Crenshaw and try and use it to their own advantage without actually understanding privilege and their role in it. And I've seen that lately, and it's kind of gross. Um, and I, it marvels at the, the creativity of white supremacy. And basically it's the concept that we cannot check one of our identities or two of our identities at the door. And that all of our identities work together and they're a part of who we are. And that means that all of our identities are a part of our movements. So if I'm in a feminist space, my blackness doesn't wait at the door until I'm out of that space. And it also means that any solutions towards helping me have to include my blackness. And it means that many problems I'm facing also include my blackness. And it was you know, originally developed 
to address a very real issue that still exists of feminism not meeting the needs of women of color, specifically black and Latinx women. And it has definitely been expanded to now include queer women, poor women, disabled women, but I think it's always important to remember why it was started because oftentimes it is taken and divorced from its original meaning. But its work was really to look and see how are we leaving people behind? How are we harming people even? And calling it progress. Because if all you're trying to do is care for the first people that come to mind in every movement, that's always gonna be the most privileged people. The people always represented first. And every movement has that. No matter how far down the rung of privilege you get, there's always gonna be a most privileged group in there. And if you're only meeting their needs, all you're doing is just splitting that ladder up. We aren't fighting to become the next oppressors. But without intersectionality, that's actually what we end up doing. Mm. And it's something that has to be baked in from the start. You can't turn around after laying all your plans and say, now let's go find everyone we've missed. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, now that we've gotten ours, let me think. Yeah. Who didn't make it with us? Hmm. Yeah, let's go, oh, where can we see them? You know, it, it yeah. doesn't work that way. And, and whatever solutions you have won't serve. And so it, it's basically, A, it's a way to not have to do it all over again multiple times because you keep screwing it up. But also it's a way to stay true to who you are. These movements have to have values, not just goals, values. And there's no social justice movement that can have strong values without intersectionality. I think that's a really powerful statement. Really powerful statement. Um, which brings me to a question, but before I get to that question, um, if you have questions of your own that you would like to ask, please make sure that you've got them on a card and that you pass them to the ushers and uh, they will bring them up to me so I can sort through them and, and see what we can do from there. Um, but I, you know, you're talking about values and, and one of the things I'm curious about, <clears throat> because I watch how you raise your, your sons, and I, and I pay attention to the things you've written about your mother and how she raised you. And so, and, and I find that you have a really unique voice that has um, opened, uh, 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 opened a crack um, in our understanding of who we are as, as a society. So I wonder um, what values and, and what values are at the core of what you do? How is it that you, because I don't have your patience, you know that, <laughs> I, don't, I don't even have your patience. So how do you do that? How do you manage to come from such a space of compassion when dealing with this subject? I think, you know, partially I'm very lucky in having my kids. Um, having this goal which is to make the world better for them, to make a world worthy of them, 
is one you can fight for for a very long time. And I was lucky in that, you know, my mom, who's the weirdest, <laughs> yeah, look at me trying to, look. She's so weird. <laughs> it's like, my mom is the kindest person I've ever known in my life. Kindness was her rule. Not niceness, kindness, right? Always seeking to try to do better, always seeking to try to help and to try to hear. Um, and so we grew up in a house where it wasn't just that slurs weren't allowed because it was rude. It's because it was mean. And, you know, my mom was constantly trying to think of how to be kind. My mom doesn't have a mean bone in her entire body at all. Like, it's, it's really annoying. Um, <laughs> but we grew up in a house where it was absolutely appalling to think that you would want to harm someone or that you would decline to help someone. And that definitely, as I started to see the world growing up and seeing that the rest of the world wasn't that way, I was also fortunate in that I didn't have a mom who lied to me about it. Um, you know, she didn't try and say, oh, well, no, people really are great at heart. She'd be like, look, I don't know. Some people are assholes, but we aren't. And we're gonna just keep trying to not be and keep trying to be good. And that kindness has always driven me, you know, to, which means I'm not always nice because it doesn't always serve people to be nice. And that has really driven me as like my number one family value. Right. My kids will be kind. And that, they, that means they will not walk away when they see something going on that's wrong. They will not try to harm someone even if they are feeling harmed. You know, they will try to have integrity. And that's kind of what I've always lived by. And when you feel it as fiercely as I did, when you grow up where it's an absolute in the house, you, you feel a sense of complete outrage. And I remember, like, probably it was about, like, I mean, I was very young when I started to feel it, but by the time I was, like, 10 or 11, when it became cool to just be mean to people, and when kids started to come, you know, to school saying awful things about people, including me, it wasn't sadness so much as outrage, because it was unconscionable, you know? How dare you? I remember, um, you know, especially growing up around, like, around white kids, when they all, like, when these kids hit the age where they all started, like, calling their moms bitches, and I'd be like, oh, we can never speak again. <laughs> I didn't know that was, like, a thing, that teenage kids, I was like, they're no longer my friends, you know, and I would give them a whole lecture as to why. Uh, I was just appalled. Um, but that sense of outrage, I think, is something that, luckily, my mom never tried to, like, rid me of. I think that we do our children a big disservice by telling them that's just the way the world works, by telling them to suck it up. Like, I, I, wanna, I want those, I think when we tell our kids to stop throwing fits, and kids are very good barometers for things that are unfair. Yes. And we keep telling them the world isn't fair as if that's a good thing, as if they should just 
continue on. And I want them to keep throwing fits. And I am a 37-year-old who is still throwing fits. And I think that's important. And my mom never tried to get me not to do that. I mean, I was a really serious child. I wasn't like actually throwing fits, but she never tried to get me to cancel my sense of outrage at things. I try not to do that with my kids. I want to keep that. I want them to stay healthy. I don't want it to overwhelm them. But I think that we do a great big disservice by telling kids that what they know is wrong isn't. We gaslight our kids from a really early age yeah. to get them to be okay with the injustice in this world. They know it's wrong. They know it's wrong when you cut in line. <laughs> and if you continue to let them know that it's wrong and they should do something about it, it means they will continue to know that it's wrong when black people are beaten by cops. And they will feel that sense of outrage that they should feel if we didn't spend their entire childhoods telling them, oh, that's just the way the world is. I, I, I really despise this idea that the world acts on its own, like we aren't a part of it. You know, <laughs> like we don't wake up every day and decide what type of a world we want yes. and decide what type of people, what type of neighbors, what type of community members we want to be. And we seriously, we raise our children to be a part of a system that is broken and flawed as if they don't have power. It's so disempowering to raise them this way, as if they will not have power to create a new system. And I tell my kids even from school, like they have power in their friend groups. They have power in their classrooms to say, no, this is not normal anymore. We're starting something new. We're starting something better. And so more fits. I don't know, that's kind of my, my motto, more fits. So, so um, I don't know if I want to talk about our brothers now or later, <laughs> because I, you know one of the things that I was really struck by um, when you talk about your brother and and the stories you tell about what it was like for him at in school. Uh, my brother had a similar experience of being a really talented, smart, brilliant kid, and and he's still that as an adult but who was so marginalized in so many ways that school didn't work for him. I mean, he stuck it out. I'm really impressed. He ended up as a, as a college dean and who taught teachers how to teach, which I thought was pretty, a great way to get back at folks. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's the ultimate revenge, right? Success is the ultimate revenge. And, and your brother, who's clearly one of the most brilliant composers and, and uh, really an amazing talent, that, that, that they had to struggle to become that, breaks my heart. And what gives me hope is the story you tell about Marcus and the <laughs> Pledge of Allegiance. So would you tell that story just briefly? Is, yeah. it, is it okay for her to tell that story? I want to check. All okay. right. Yeah, I was going to look at him because sometimes when I take him to things, he's like, don't talk about me. <laughs> but he's okay. Thank you for asking that, Absolutely. too. Absolutely. That was really kind. Absolutely. Um, 
you know, I can't, I wrote about a bit about struggles that my brother had in elementary school because he's a year younger than me. So we were always one grade apart. So I always had like a real, it was really easy for me to see at times what he was going through. Um, and he definitely had a much harder time as a young black boy. Um, and I can't, like I wrote a chapter talking about it and I, I, didn't, I didn't realize till it was too late, I cannot read that chapter. I start crying every time. I, I didn't realize I was still so mad because he's my little brother and I love him to death and he's okay, he's, he's fine, he's doing great. But I tried to read that chapter right after I had written it before the book came out and I was like, oh no, <laughs> this isn't gonna work. And I'm like, and like my throat closes up, it was awful. Um, and, you know, my brother was a, is still a very unique person. And one of the things about blackness is, not only does the world tell black boys, think that black boys are violent and think that they are disruptive, but it also says that black boys can only be one thing ever, or they're weird, or they don't fit. And I mean, my brother is weird. <laughs> Um, but he's still black, um, and he's wonderful. Uh, both of my brothers are very weird and wonderful. And it was really hard for um, to be constantly told, like, what's wrong with you? Why do you keep doing this? Why can't you be normal? Why? He wasn't meant to be. Um, it did a lot of yeah. harm. And through his own sheer will, he pulled himself out of that through an unbelievable amount of will. Um, and the city is better for it. No um, my little dude <laughs> like, was born with way more confidence than I think, like, I think whatever confidence that my brother and I were lacking as young kids, he just has all of it. And he's very perceptive around the world, about the world, listens to a lot of things, spends a lot of time on YouTube, um, has some chemtrail theories we had to talk about a little bit. <laughs> but he cares deeply about the world and he stands up for himself, he knows his worth. And so it was really interesting because, you know, a lot of times I think we forget how much our children absorb. Like, and he came to me one day and said he, didn't want to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And I, it, it hadn't occurred to me, this was a couple years ago, and he's, he's only 10, he was I think seven at the time. And it hadn't occurred to me to have that discussion with him, I didn't realize he had been hearing about news stuff about it, and so I was like, you know, part of me as an activist, I'm like <laughs> 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 But I was like, well, I'm gonna be like the responsible parent, and I'm gonna make sure he actually knows what he's talking about, and that he has good reason, and so I asked him why, and you know, he talked to me about how, A, as an atheist, and he has been a self-avowed atheist since kindergarten, um, it was, first it was, there's no God, and then there was no Santa, because it didn't make sense that if there was a God up in the sky, there was no God, why would there also be, why would there be this Santa? Um, but, you know, he came to me and he laid out his thoughts and he said, first off, he didn't like pledging to God. And he didn't think that people constantly pledging to country has been working out very well historically either. 
And then he said he didn't think that this country really did treat black people very well, and he thought a lot of it was a lie, and he didn't want to say a lie. And he was nervous because he wanted to talk to his teacher about it, and he wasn't quite sure how, so I asked if he wanted me to craft an email with his reasons, and luckily, his teacher was very supportive and actually was, it was really wonderful to see because I was nervous. I was ready to go to war for my baby if necessary. You know, like I sent that email and being like, I'm about to throw down if I have to. <laughs> um, but actually he came up with a creative solution because they, they, each student takes turns leading the Pledge of Allegiance for a week. And so he was nervous because his time was coming up. So it wasn't just saying it, like he was gonna lead the whole class in it. And, and that was really pushing him. Um, so he's, instead, they could pick a poem if they didn't want to do it. And so not only did he not have to say this kind of outdated pledge that didn't serve him, but he got to learn some poetry as well, um, and the class did. And so it gave me so much hope to see, I think we, you know, we forget that our kids have the ability to ask for even more. And it's a wonderful thing. It can be a little disconcerting. You know? <laughs> it can be a little scary because I think sometimes you fight for things and you think that what you're fighting for is the end goal. And you forget that what you see as the end goal is what you've been allowed to see based on what you've lived in. And what we're providing for our kids is the opportunity to see something that we can't see yet and fight for that. And so to see, I don't know what he's gonna be doing in the future, but to, to know that he's willing to stand up for himself. Um, and it's definitely something he's had to reassert over again every year, his, his thoughts on this with each new teacher. And he's done so on his own. Um, it gives me a lot of hope. And if he, if he can do that, I can definitely get in front of a room and say something, because it's much harder. I wasn't saying that at 10. I wasn't saying that at seven. Um, and I know that he's not the only one, and I think we should be, a lot of people like to talk about like lazy young kids, but no, man, these kids, they're fighting for things that we didn't even know we need, but we do. So, absolutely. One of, my, one of my favorite parts of this book, so when y'all buy your copies and you start reading it, um, is near the end when, when you start talking about how, um, what, what to do. And you start talking about how um, each generation um, usurps the next. And I love that because one of my joys has been watching a new generation take that on. And I know that there are people in my generation who, who want to make things wrong with that. You know, that, that it's not being done quite right and it's not, but, but, and what I loved about the story about Marcus was that it wasn't just the story of Marcus, it's actually a story of you and Marcus and how you have given him the space and affirmed his voice and let him be wholly who he is because you have seen what happens when someone is not allowed to be who they are. And I, I think there's so much in that um, about how you raise children, and I want your next book to be about child raising. But <laughs> <clears throat> hey, I'm up here, I get to say that, right? 
So actually, one of the questions we got from the audience, we're 17 and 18. How do you respond to ignorant people? What's the best way to do it? First of all, good on you to want to do it, to yes. be conscious of doing it. I would say, first off, um, be aware of your situation and where you're at, right? And see, is this a place where I can be hurt and will be hurt? Know what you're talking about. And sometimes even if that means that you have to say, I know this is wrong, I don't really have many more details, but I know this is wrong, say that. Um, but I think it's also, it's really important to, first off, if you're a young person of color, to always protect yourself and see that you're making an investment in someone. Decide whether you want to do that. These conversations aren't easy. And if you are a young person of color, you've got a whole life of these conversations ahead of you. So see it, start reframing it as an investment in that person or an investment in yourself if you need that person to understand more. Um, I like to always start with questions. If someone's saying something ignorant, a lot of times people can find out how ignorant they are if you ask them the questions that led to them saying whatever it is they said. Most ignorance doesn't have much to back it up. Hence, ignorance. Um, <laughs> so, a lot of times when people say things, what do you mean by that? What, where did you, can you tell me more? Can you tell me where you heard that? Can you tell me why this is important to you? Can you tell me why, you know, this is something that you favor? And it's really easy, it's usually about two questions in before people realize that there's nothing to what they're saying. That's the thing about like racist beliefs. They don't go very deep. There's no science to them, right? There's no real history to them. It's literally like, oh, well my dad used to say that at the dinner table all the time and now it's what I believe. And that, no matter how ignorant you are, you, you know when that comes out of your mouth, it's not the best argument. Well, because you do everything your dad says anyway, right? Yeah. Still, yeah. at so, 47. <laughs> those questions definitely help. Um, and, and if anything, I, I, I hope that you know that if you are talking to people and you don't get the response you want, and they don't immediately say, you've opened my eyes, I see it differently, know that you can annoy people into making change. <laughs> You, this one time may not be the time that does it. But if they learn that they keep saying ignorant stuff over and over again, and every time they have to have this long conversation as to what they were thinking, they're gonna stop saying it, if anything, just so that you stop asking them questions. And once they stop saying it enough, and they open up for new ideas and something to replace it, it really does make a difference in how they think. And if anything, it does make a difference to the environment they are contributing to. So it's always worth it to ask. It's always worth it to say something, even if it doesn't end. A lot of times people think that because maybe it ended with someone being mad at us or someone storming away, that it was a waste. But I've had people come back to me two years later and say, I'm so, you know, I don't know if you remember, but one time I yelled at you on Facebook and said you were the real problem and you were a reverse racist. Um, and I've had two years to think about it. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry, I have no idea who you are. 
But people come back all the time later. Yeah. And, you know, because maybe I, wasn't the fir- I was the first person to make them that mad, but then 10 other people later, they're like, maybe, maybe it is me. <laughs> um, so keep that in mind. It's always worth it to say anything. And even if that person never comes around, it's worth it for the people around them that have been harmed, that need to know that that's not normal. And that's not okay. And that you know it's not okay. And I find, I find those words really powerful to, to be able to say, you know, that's not okay. Yeah. It, that's just not okay. Speaking of which, here's our next question. <clears throat> Is the Women's March an example of white supremacy? Can we walk together carrying diverse priorities, populations, find the intersectionality? Has the Women's March found intersectionality? Well, I mean, I don't think Women's March is itself a being. Um, So a Women's March itself is not white supremacy. It's a collection of people. Now a lot of the people marching uphold white supremacy and in ways that they don't want to examine. And transmisogyny in a lot of ways they don't want to examine. And they bring that to the march and they write it on their signs. It doesn't mean the march or the concept of a march or the concept of women marching together is bad. But it's just like any other movement that we bring people together when you're not willing to investigate your privilege and not really asking, am I marching for all women, not just myself? Um, I don't think it means we throw the whole concept away. But I think it means that we continuously critique. You can go to a march. And you can look at the science and say, I saw some things that were really harmful here and that need to change. The answer is then to not just stop marching. It's to march better, right? And continue to have difficult conversations and to continue to work to do better and to atone for where you didn't and where you harmed people. Um, And I think that that process, that conversation, I know a lot of people have been harmed by discussion around the Women's March. They weren't harmed because the march exists. They were harmed because of what already existed, which is a lot of racism, classism, and transmisogyny in our greater society, including our liberal spaces and our feminist spaces. That just showed itself there, but it'll show itself at your PTA meeting. It'll show itself at, you know, when you go see a movie. Um, and all that we're given when it shows itself is an opportunity to do better. It's whether or not you take it. So I hope that with each of these marches and we see these critiques and we hear people saying, please stop doing this, this is harming me. I would love to be included, I would love to march with you. But you are excluding me through these actions. I hope that if you think you are marching for women, that that means that you would want them to feel comfortable marching with you as well. And where you may have failed in the past, you can say you are sorry and try to rectify that and do better next time. I have to say that one of the things that I um, wonder about the Women's March is I wonder how many women were marching for themselves and not for others. How many were saying, um, I want this fixed because it impacts me, but we're not really thinking about um, other people uh, and, and how 
life in general impacts other people. I, and I, I've actually been wondering that a lot about the conversation around um, sexual harassment, about how many of us women um, are outraged that we've been harassed but don't really pay attention to how harassment has impacted other women. Uh, and, and do we stand up for each other now or do we just expect somebody else to stand up for us? So those are, I think, you know, part of, and I, I love what you just said, that, that it, the march is not a thing. It's a collection of individuals. And the question is, why are those individuals there? Mm -hmm. um, so um, what is a hard truth you've learned lately? Um, I'd say, oh gosh, well this one, it's not gonna sound hard. Well, yeah, it's hard for anyone who has to work with me. I've learned I can't be on time to anything. I was late today. Um, it, it's, it becomes a bigger problem the more responsibility I have. And I thought maybe I would get better at it, and I'm not. Um, I've learned also that I don't, I don't know if I'm ever going to have a work-life balance. Mm. And that, people ask me about it all the time. Like, it seems like a really loving thing to like ask someone who's working hard, like, but it, it, all it does is make me sad because I don't think I have it in me. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm really serious. I don't know if I ever will. I think that sometimes there are people who will never figure that out and can't. It's not a part of who they are. I don't think that's part of who I am. And so I'm in this weird personal space of trying to figure out what aspects of my personal life I'm willing to let suffer because I can't quite cut my work. Um, and that's a tough thing to get used to. I'm a single parent. So, like, that's been really hard to realize that, like, yeah, I'm not, that peace and serenity thing is not, it's not gonna find me. <laughs> um, and wondering how I can make this sustainable and know I have to. And I'm not speaking like a great martyr because I know there are people out, like, doing backbreaking work to feed their families every day. And the question of self-care is definitely one of luxury. Um, but it's not something I think, even if offered me, I could do. Um, and I don't know if it's healthy, and I'm pretty sure it's not. <laughs> but that's been a really hard truth for me to get used to because I, I, I like, I've, I've had to actually start pushing back because it just ends up becoming more pressure. I end up feeling really guilty about the fact that I can't mm -hmm. make that time. Mm -hmm. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> That, so I am no fun to hang out with. <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. Oh, I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. But maybe it's true. I mean, <laughs> we have a good time hanging out. We do. When I get there. There's but I'm, true. I think I was like, what was I, 45 minutes late last time we were hanging out? Oh. God, I'm the worst. <laughs> <sighs> but it was worth it. For me, I don't know. So kind, so generous. It was worth it. Um, so we only have a couple minutes left. Um, so what I want to ask you is, um, is there something that you wish you had said in another interview that you've had in the last, I don't know, week or two that, gosh, you walked away and thought, oh, I meant to say that, or I wish I'd have said this this way that you'd like to take advantage of the time now to say? <laughs> um, you know, it's been interesting doing this interview circuit because I've, I've been a writer for a while now, so I work in kind of, when you're a writer and you're being interviewed, 
by people basically in the same industry, it's really odd, like, because you're critiquing at the same time that you're being interviewed, you know? Um, but I, it's, it's no stranger to me that this is a very white industry, that writing and speaking and all of this is. But when you're writing a book on race, um, almost every interview I've had has been with a white person. And it's been really frustrating to have to find a kind way to reassert over and over again that no, I did not write my book for the white person sitting in front of me. <laughs> um, it's a weird feeling because I want people to read my book and I do want white people to read my book and absorb it and learn from it and grow. But at the same time, I don't want them claiming it. It's mine and I wrote it for the benefit of people of color. Um, I wrote it to uplift people of color. Even if it means sometimes going a long route through the actions of white people in order to do so. And so when I sit in interview after interview and people are like, thank you for writing this for me. And I'm like, ah. uh, and especially because I wrote that into the book multiple times. <laughs> so I, I, I hope that people understand that sometimes you can go through and you can, you can read a whole book by a black woman on issues of race and white supremacy and the centering of whiteness and think you've absorbed it. You can follow her on Facebook for years and still think that she wrote an entire book for you. <laughs> and so if you think you got it all figured out, you probably don't. And it's not to make you feel bad, but to know that's how insidious this is. Um, and I hope that people recognize that. You know, listening to the interviews, you'll see a pattern, you know, and you can see people who are like, let me tell you my life story and what it did for me to read this in my journey. And I'm like, look, I was there, dude. I know what it was like when you didn't get these things. And I know what it's like now, and I know what it'll be like a month from now when you finally get that you did this interview and made it all about you again. Huh. Um, and so that's been a weird thing because you're also like, oh, I'm gonna be kind and this person's interviewing me and I need, you know, I want people to hear about my book. And so how do I find a way to recenter this conversation again? Um, because I don't ever want people of color and specifically black people and black women to think that I didn't write this book for them. They'll read it differently. And there are parts where I address it for quite differently but it's for them. It's, um, so we're, we're sadly out of time. We could do this for a long time, <laughs> but we are out of time. Uh, please join me in thanking this amazing person. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. This conversation with Seattle writer Ijeoma Oluo took place at Benaroya Hall on January 25th. 
You can hear the full event on our website, KUOW.org. Stay current with us by subscribing to our podcast. Tune in again soon.